Uh, I count it as a great privilege to be here amongst God's people and a humbling privilege at that. It's really lovely to be here. Over the four talks of this afternoon, tonight, uh, tomorrow uh, morning, over the four talks, we're looking, as John said, at the preaching of Christ crucified as a way of understanding the gospel and personal evangelism. So I want to start with the word preaching. A lot of clearing the decks this evening on this talk. So we start with preaching. We need to be clear what we're talking about when we talk about preaching. And the word preaching, like love, covers a multitude of sins. Put simply, the gospel, as I hope we'll come to see, is a message to declare or to announce. It's, it's an announcement that needs to be proclaimed. Now, of course, there's more to it than that, but yet that lies at the core of it. It's not really a theory or an idea or an experience or a cause. It's a message. If it was a theory, we might actually investigate it and explore it. If it was an idea, well, then we might discuss it as an idea. If it was an experience, we might run classes to help people share the experience, but it's a message that needs to be announced. So it needs to be announced or proclaimed or declared or preached. Now, the activity of preaching is usually underestimated. It certainly is in my country at home. Experts there tell us that hearers can only concentrate for 11 minutes, and so therefore any sermon that goes longer than that is a waste of time, space, air and effort. We're also told if we haven't struck oil in 10 minutes, we should stop boring. There are many jokes about preaching, about falling asleep in sermons. I've even met the man who three times fell asleep in the sermons that he was preaching. And I knew him, and I believe it. (laughs) Many people at church prefer music, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to sermons, while others prefer worship and liturgy to uh, the preaching of sermons. My Fair Lady, if you're old enough to remember that remake of George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion, and if you remember that, you really are old. (laughs) The heron complains of words, words, words. All you ever do is speak of words. Give me love. And for many in the community, we should replace preaching with actions of love and community and social concern. And for many, that is now dressed up as evangelism which I want to assure you it's not. On the other hand, preaching can be overestimated, especially by preachers who love the sound of their own voice and being the centre of attention each Sunday for half an hour or more or more or more. Some who have been influenced greatly by a great preacher Imagine they too are great preachers and so bore countless congregations with their limited ability to preach. It's true that the importance of preaching is always the content of what is being preached, not the preacher or the act or the style of preaching. 
But that truth enables boring monologue preachers to claim that their preaching is good because the content is faithful, forgetting completely that the essence of good communication is not what is said, but what is heard. The message received is always more important than the message sent. It might be faithfully true, but if it is unable to be heard, that is no great comfort. However, the problem with underestimation or overestimation is that the word preaching is being so limited down to one activity. It's so defined in terms of delivering a monologue in a pulpit to a congregation. Now, that may be the main usage of the word today in modern English, but within the New Testament, the usages of preaching and the variety of words that are translated preaching is all about declaring, announcing, proclaiming, which can be done in a church or it can be done in a marketplace. It can be done in a house or it can be done in a restaurant. It can be done to a multitude or it can be done to a small community or it can be done just to another single person. It can be done in the speech of, of, of declaring with the volume of your voice or with or without microphone or in a letter that you send to someone. It's announcing. You can announce announcements in all manner of ways. In the old days, you could make an announcement in the newspaper. You could put an advertisement announcing something happening, and that would be preaching a gospel. We'll more of that later on. So I want you to look at with me tonight, at, to start with, Paul's speech to the, the elders in Ephesus. It's found in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Now, I confess that I prepared these talks on the ESV to discover that the Common Bible here is the NIV 84. So if you get a little confused between my words, don't worry, I'm more confused because I've tried to update to the NIV for you and sometimes I'll have succeeded and sometimes I'll fail. But Acts 20, and I've got an, an NIV here and it's, it's about, uh, oh, I think, 12-point font and my eyes operate at about 18 point these days, so we'll see. But Acts 20 is where I'm reading from, and verse 18. Um, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Here was Paul in his last speech to these elders of Ephesus. Paul, the, the older, mature missionary by this stage of the game, Paul describing his settled missionary and evangelistic work. Notice how he declared the message. It was by teaching it. And he did it publicly and from house to house. Any and everywhere he went, he would do it. And he took any and every opportunity to declare his message. If we look back at the description of what he did in Ephesus in 
chapter 19, just back a page or so, we find that he first there met up with some of the disciples of John the Baptist. And then, having dealt with that issue of how the John the Baptist disciples who haven't heard of Jesus would yet come to Christ, he then moves on to the synagogue, which is his usual place of starting, as was his custom. He does the synagogue work first for a theological reason and a practical reason. The theological reason being that the gospel was to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The practical one was this is a group of people used to sitting and studying the scriptures and need to hear about the Messiah and it's an easy place in which to preach the gospel. But when he was no longer welcome there, as was expected for theological reasons, he moved on and taught in the hall of Tyrannus a teacher whose name would not give me great encouragement if I was a school student. (laughs) Professor Tyrannus does not sound like the man I want to be taught anything by. (laughs) However, in the hall of Tyrannus, he preached. And so in chapter 19, I'm now, chapter 19, verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them, he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Do you notice from that that Paul's evangelistic activity is again declaring? Verse 20, you know that I've not hesitated... Though, chapter 20, verse 20, I've not hesitated to preach or to declare, as the word is there, anything that would be helpful for you. And that's what he did to the disciples of John the Baptist. That's what he did in the synagogue. That's what he did in the hall of Tyrannus. And he was not only announcing to them God's great work in Christ Jesus, but also any and everything else that goes with it as he declared the message of salvation and called upon them to repent and to turn back to God and believe in the Lord Jesus. And this declaring ministry is always accompanied, back in chapter 20, verse 20, I'm always accompanied by teaching. For it's a message that needs to be understood. The aim is not just to let the message go out there. The aim is to get people to hear and understand what is being said in the message. And so he taught them, which is why he spent his day reasoning and persuading in the synagogue in chapter 19, or reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus again in chapter 19. Notice also that it wasn't quick. He was in the synagogue for three months, and daily in the hall of Tyrannus for another two years. We remember, you see, the moment in which we become Christians, and we can talk of evangelism as if it is converting. But the conversion step, the moment of becoming Christian, that's a wonderful moment. For some of us, not that dramatic. It's something we've semi-grown up with. For others, it's walking out of darkness into the light. It's an overwhelming experience. And it's high drama and great excitement when we see someone come to Christ Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. But There's a lifetime that leads up to that moment. And often, usually, the evangelism takes a long time. It can be days, it can be weeks, it can be months, it can be years 
of being taught the word of God, of knowing the information upon which you're going to respond. It's the problem, as I mentioned earlier to our elders here today, it's, it's the problem of my friend John. John came from a country where he was told that when he came to Australia that it was not like his home country. In his home country, marriages were arranged for him. But in Australia, he had to ask the girl himself. So not knowing the rules other than that, every Sunday night at church, at the coffee time, he walked around and proposed to different girls. (laughs) And I had all these girls from our church coming up to us saying, there's a strange man over there who's just proposed to me. And I would say, did you accept? And they looked horrified at this possibility. And so I would go week after week to John and try to explain to him the subtleties of Australian courting procedures. (laughs) And next week he would arrive at church and propose to another girl. And I'd go through the process again. Ultimately it was resolved when John went back to his home country and his parents organised a wedding for him (laughs) with a girl of their choice because he could never understand Evangelism, you see, is not the proposal on the first night. I don't know Jesus. I don't know anything about Jesus. I've never really heard of Jesus. I don't know what Jesus did. I don't know what he does. I don't know who he is. But yes, I'm going to become a Christian. That's ridiculous, isn't it? That's just total folly and stupidity. That is not the way. No, evangelism means explaining, teaching. You're declaring to them a great message and a great announcement, but you do that by teaching them. And daily in the hall of Tyrannus, for two years, he was teaching the people of Ephesus. And three months amongst the Jews in the synagogue who had been studying the Old Testament all their lives. It's not necessarily a quick thing. It's not generally a quick once-off experience, but a growing understanding of the concepts, of the facts, of the interpretation of the implications of giving your life to the one who has given his life to you. But the gospel is something that is learnt. Paul, when he wrote to Ephesians in chapter 4, writes about the Gentile immorality and he says, You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you have heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. So in his practice, described by Luke in Acts, in his own recall to the Ephesian elders in chapter 20, in his discussion in the book of Ephesians, Paul declared and taught his gospel. But he also uses another word, testifying. The NIV doesn't have testifying. That's because the NIV is wrong. Verse 21, it says, I have declared to both Jews... But the word declared there is the word testifying or witnessing. It's the same word, testifying or witnessing, because witnesses testify, if you remember. Testifying to both Jew and Greek that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Now, it is important to understand this word witnessing, because what is a witness... We tend to use the word witness to talk about someone who's seen something and tells about it when asked. But 
the telling is more important and the kind of telling is more important. That is, the Greek word is one which gives rise to our English word, martyr. You see, you never call a witness unless there's a contest. A witness is not simply someone who says, he, says something and can tell you about it, who saw something and can tell you about it. A witness is somebody who will testify against other people's evidences, against other people's statements. When everybody agrees about something, let's not bother calling the witnesses. There's no point calling the witnesses. We all agree about that. It's when somebody disagrees that you say, well, we better call a witness to find out what evidence there is. And therefore the witness is always giving his view in a contest of opposition. Witnesses and witnessing is speaking against the current view and opinion. And therefore, being a witness always involves opposition and conflict. Now, I told you you wouldn't like evangelism. You see, this is the problem, isn't it? That you, you, you want to actually go and talk to people who agree with you. Well, if they agree with you, they're already Christians. We're talking about people who disagree with you. And therefore, you're going to have to contend for the truth. You're going to have to contest, and they will be met with opposition. That is the character of being witnessing. And so, Paul, opposition is to whom? Oh, to everybody. For he's testifying to both Jews and Greeks, to everybody. And the content of his message is one of conflict. For what is his message? He testifies of repentance. Uh, repentance is not a message that anybody wants to hear. Because repentance is, stop, you're going the wrong way. Now that's a very helpful thing to say to someone who's going the wrong way. Especially down a freeway. Really important. Uh, I come from the land where we drive on the left-hand side of the road, which is the right side of the road, if you understand <laughs> what I mean. And even in the last 24 hours, a couple of times in my kind of wild imagined fury as I sit in the suicide seat beside your drivers, <laughs> I think to myself, he's going down the wrong side. And then I find out, well, he is, but it's the right side here. And if I were driving here, I would have a very short lifespan, as would somebody else from Dubai coming the other direction. To tell people, stop, you're going the wrong way, is a very useful thing to do, but it's not a message anyone wants to hear. That's the last thing you want to hear, isn't it? Especially when we're not talking about driving down the freeway, we're talking about the way you live your life is completely wrong. No, people won't want that message. Some people will because they're so desperate in the gutter they know that it's wrong. But those who are proud and successful and effective and wealthy, powerful people, they never want to hear this message. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because he has to say, yes, I've made all my wealth and I'm totally wrong in what I've done. Zacchaeus. It is possible but really under the power of the Spirit of God, isn't it? With man, it's impossible. So we're preaching an impossible message of repentance. That is the message. 
a change of mind that will lead to a change in life, which involves the rejection of the way we now live. It's a challenge to the life you live now. And Paul's message is to one and to all, is repentance towards God, turning around and embracing God. He can see that was very insulting to the Jew because the Jew claimed to be already one of God's people. And you're going to say to the Jew, you're not? That's very insulting to the Greek because the Greek in his philosophy and practice, he knows all about gods. And you're going to teach him that actually all those gods, they're not true. But it was Paul's message. If you remember the Thessalonian conversions, the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he describes it, how... You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The very nature of the Thessalonian conversion, which was one that spread across the Greek world, it was such an astonishing thing that a whole group of people had turned from idols to serve the true and living God. For that was... The second side of Paul's testimony, though, not just turning from idols to serve the true and living God, but also to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we went around preaching repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus. The concept of faith is trust. And you you wouldn't hear a talk from me if you didn't take offence at some point, somewhere along the line, so take a deep breath, here we go. I wish we got rid of the word faith out of our Bibles and never used it again. Now for a man who believes in justification by faith alone, that does sound a little heretical, doesn't it? But you see, the word faith in modern English does not mean what it means in the Bible. And so we in our Christian community use the word faith and we know what we mean sometimes. But when we go outside our hallowed walls and talk outside, they never know what we mean. Because faith in modern secular Australia and and Western civilization means irrationality and superstition. You talk to a non-Christian and you mention faith, that's what they think you're talking about. Being irrational and superstitious. And frankly, I don't know a Christian who thinks that's what they're talking about. The message received is more important than the message that's sent. So I'm going to say that, and they're going to hear that. What's the point of me saying it? And yet faith is everywhere in our Bibles. Well, it doesn't need to be, friends. Because we have three other perfectly good English words that we could use for several centuries before the non-Christians ruin them. Right? <laughs> three really good words. They are all like the biblical word, non-religious. Because faith is not a religious word. Faith is an everyday word. You've got to have faith in your business dealings. You've got to have faith in, in your contract. Faith is not a religious word, but it's become a religious word of superstition and irrationality. But we've got three good English words. Take a moment, turn to the person beside you, tell them what they are. Any one of them. Okay, who can tell me one of them? Trust. Trust is a really good one, isn't it? And remember, you've got the flip side of it. Faith in the faithful. Trust in the trustworthy. You've got both sides, just the words you'd like. Trust is a ripper. What else? Belief, yes? Believe in the believable. I'm going to ask for four now. Believe in the believable. (laughs) 
Believe is, is on the faith continuum, though. So it's the next one that will drop into superstition. Sorry? Depend. Depend is a ripper. You depend on the dependable. Trusting the trustworthy, depend on the dependable. Exactly the same thing. It means precisely the same thing. I prefer trust because I can spell it. Depend, I'm never sure. Yeah? What's the next one? Got any other one? Rely. Did I hear it? Well, if I didn't, I'm telling you. Rely on the reliable. You rely on something. You depend on something. You trust something. That's having faith. Perfectly good words. Don't need any explanation for the unbeliever to be used. Take faith out of your Bible. Keep rep- the trouble is your Bible won't work if you do that. If you cut every reference to faith out, or if you highlight it out and cross it out, your Bible will be a mess, won't it? Just pray for the Bible translators that one day they'll move into the world of everyday English and translate uh, in a way that's appropriate for us. We got any Bible translators here at the moment? <laughs> particularly offended somebody, I'm sorry. If I have. However, if you get the message, I'm pleased. If you're listening to this on tape, on CD, on whatever it is you downloaded on these days, you're missing a great gathering. And you should turn up to gatherings like this rather than listening and listening later. But all those who are listening in posterity, hello, posterity. Now let's get back to where we're going here. Faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, where to trust, where to rely, where to depend upon Jesus, both as the Christ and as the Lord. He is the saviour of sinners in the day of judgment that his death and resurrection have commenced. And in the face of judgment, we trust him, we rely upon him, we depend upon him for our salvation. He is the one who will rescue us from the wrath to come. But therein lies the puzzle. The puzzle of Paul's preaching of the gospel. For he tells them about Jesus. He reasons, he teaches, he persuades them about Jesus. But what did he teach them about Jesus' death and resurrection? If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 In the opening of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that long chapter on the resurrection, we read, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Here is the gospel that Paul preached, and a gospel outline that we're fairly familiar with. Christ died for our sins and on the third day was raised. There are some details to observe in this passage. What he has preached as the gospel, he has received. He's received it and handed on. That is, Paul didn't make up the gospel. And the gospel is in accordance with the scriptures. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
That is how we are to understand the death and resurrection of Jesus by the scriptures. In fact, the fact is that Christ died. The scriptures interpret that fact for our sins. The fact, he died. The interpretation, for our sins. That is, we must never interpret the Bible, my dear friends. There's books written on interpretation. I used to even give talks on interpretation when I didn't know what I was talking about. You hope I know what I'm talking about now, don't you? Otherwise, we're all wasting our time here. But when I didn't, I, but I was just following the fad and fashion of our day, and it's wrong. You must never interpret the Bible because the Bible is the interpretation. You're going to interpret an interpretation and then when you give the, your interpretation of the interpretation, I'll interpret your interpretation of the interpretation and so we go on down to the point where no one knows anything. You do not interpret the Bible because the Bible is the interpretation. It interprets itself. It interprets the facts that it's speaking about. It interprets you, the reader. For you to interpret the Bible is to sit in judgment over the Bible. What you must do is have the Bible interpret you as you sit under the Bible. The word interpretation, interpret, has changed meaning significantly in the 20th century. Most of your dictionaries will have two different meanings. The old meaning was to understand it, to comprehend it. The new meaning is to determine what you make of it. It's quite a different thing that has happened. So we give a, an interpretation of Bach. That means we play it on xylophones or whatever that Bach would never have thought of playing it on. That's our interpretation. Or we give an interpret I saw an interpretation of Macbeth uh, in uh, London a couple of years ago and it was all set in Russia in the, during the revolution. Well, when I was a boy, it was in Scotland. You know, and it, it was quite different. It weren't, wasn't nurses in military uniform, the old witches at the beginning. It was quite different. That, that's a, a modern interpretation of Macbeth. It's not trying to say, what is Shakespeare saying? It's saying, what do I make of Shakespeare? See, you're sitting in judgment over rather than sitting under the text. That shift in, in understanding of postmodernity, as it is called, fundamental mistake and Christians mustn't do it with the Bible. We don't interpret the Bible, the Bible interprets us. It tells us what the world is about, it tells us what we're about and it tells us what Jesus is about. The fact Jesus died, the interpretation for our sins, there is what we are reading here and it's all according to the day of salvation, the third day that he rose from the dead. But the observation I draw your attention to really here is much more important than just those small matters. It's, the trouble is, it's not there. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is not in the book of Acts. Namely, that all the accounts of Paul's evangelistic preaching in the book of Acts, he never once mentions that Christ died for our sins. Here he says it's of first importance, but in the book of Acts, never mentioned. 
When he goes through the Acts sermons, if you travel through them in the synagogues or in the marketplace at the Areopagus, where he was with the Jews or with John's disciples or the God-fearers or the Greeks, whether he was speaking to the philosophers or to the idolaters, he never mentions that Christ died for our sins. He always mentions the resurrection, which implies that Jesus had died. The fact is always there. But the interpretation of the atonement, dying for our sins, is not part of Paul's evangelistic preaching. That creates then the puzzle for us. If he delivered it as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, why didn't he mention it in his sermons? Now you can say, well, that's of course Luke didn't record it properly. Luke didn't know, but Luke did know about it because he does talk about it in Acts 20, 28 when he's talking to the Ephesian elders. For he talks about the church of God which he bought with his own blood. But you see, that's not one of the evangelistic preachings. That's actually a preaching to the church, in particular the church elders. Now, we don't want to say that Luke misrepresented Paul's sermons, nor do we want to say that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is misrepresenting his own preaching. So why the disparity between Paul's claim in 1 Corinthians 15 and the accounts we have in the book of Acts? We know that Paul tailored his message to his context. The presentation in Acts 14 to the idolaters at Lystra is different to the presentation that he gives to the Jews in Thessalonica in the synagogue, or the philosophers in Athens, or the disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus. He can tailor his message so much, but could he tailor it so much as to leave out that which is of first importance? One way of unravelling this puzzle is to pay careful attention to the gospel of God itself that Paul speaks and writes about. For example, look at the beginning of Romans chapter 1. Back to the left a little bit here, Romans 1. So glad the Bible I've borrowed has the books in the same place as the usual ones. You'll never be sure. You drive on the wrong side of the road, you could have the Bible organised differently, couldn't you? Possible. In Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set aside for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the, in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's not quite the outline that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, is it? You see, we wouldn't include descended from David in our gospel presentation, and yet for Paul, it's an important part of his gospel presentation, for it speaks of the messianic claims of Jesus. And so he often will speak of descended from David. 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Well, he's left a lot out there, hasn't he? But he's put in descended from David, which we wouldn't have ever included in our gospel. And notice that in the gospel account of Romans 1, it's about the resurrection. He's the son of God in power, according to the spirit, by his resurrection. 
I mean, it's, it's reminiscent of Peter in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, where by the resurrection he's poured out his spirit and therefore we are assured that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. But again, it's not died for your sins. But it is the church in Corinth where he talks of preaching of Christ and him crucified, where we have this first importance of Christ dying for our sins. So is there something special about the church in Corinth that the gospel is being tailored for them about Christ's crucifixion? Well, here we see the special nature of the Corinthian church and its particular sinfulness and failure to embrace the gospel. For this was the church that was gifted in every way, proud of its spirituality, but ungodly in the extreme. It's the most troubled church that Paul writes to, and he writes this lengthy first epistle to correct. There are fights and there are conflicts and divisions within the church. There's sexual immorality worse than the pagans. There's lawsuits between members. There's quarrels over food offered to idols. There's disagreements about the place of gifts in the church. There's theological confusion and conflict over the resurrection. And if that's not bad enough, this church prides itself in its spiritual maturity. Look how Paul describes it to them in the uh, opening chapters of 1 Corinthians. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians uh, 1 verse 4. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all speaking and in all knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Here is the gifted church of the New Testament, not lacking any gift, but who didn't know how to love one another and didn't know how to use the gifts that they had been given. Or again, it's the church dividing and fighting like normal non-Christians, Look across to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? And you can see, actually the Greek is there, are you not just of the flesh? And again you can see their arrogance and pride. Look across to chapter 4 verse 6. Now brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes all different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Well, look in chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that doesn't even occur of pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of the... You're proud. A proud, boastful church that is riddled with problems. So what does Paul teach them? 
he draws from the gospel message the centrality of Christ crucified, of Christ's death for your sins. It's not a message of worldly power. It's not a message of worldly wisdom. They love the power. They love the wisdom. And they lack both because they have neglected Christ and him crucified. His message is a message of human weakness and folly to teach that God's wisdom and God's power is quite different to the world's so that nobody may boast except in the cross of Christ. This is the aspect of the gospel that this church needed. They needed to hear of the true humility of the Son of God who bore their sins on the cross. That evangelism is not coming with lofty speech and plausible words of wisdom, but out of the simple message of Christ and him crucified. For the gospel is a circle of truth. All truth is circular. It's self-authenticating. As the Spirit authenticates to us the truth of God's word, the gospel is true because it's true. It isn't true because it's proven by external arguments or evidences. It's true because it's true. And because it's true, then external arguments and evidences will be consistent with it. But its truth lies within God and within itself. Its truth is not dependent upon anything external to itself other than God, whose gospel it is. For God is not answerable to anybody other than himself and any standard he chooses to set for himself. Like mathematics, all truth is self-evident and circular. That whole understanding of truth and the circularity of the gospel is very important and helpful in our evangelism, friends, because it means, firstly, that any part of the gospel is consistent with any other part of the gospel, Any part of the gospel implies the rest of the gospel. So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our sin has not been paid for and we're still in our sins. The resurrection of Jesus implies the full satisfaction of the death of Jesus. And the failure for Jesus to rise would be the failure for our sins to be paid for. Secondly, it means to preach one part is to imply the rest. I don't have to say everything to say something. That's a terrible relief because I talk an enormous length anyway. If I have to say anything, everything, in order to say anything, you will be here so long, you tickies, you'll fall out the window. And I'm not so good at raising people (laughs) as the apostle. And I don't have to say everything in order to say anything accurately. Two and two equals four. There's a whole range of mathematics outside of two plus two equals four, isn't it? But because I haven't told you everything, does not in any way disqualify the accuracy of two plus two equals four. I don't have to tell you everything there is in order to tell you something accurately. So when Jesus preached the gospel in in Mark chapter 1 verse 14, he preached the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Doesn't mention his death, doesn't mention the reason for his death, doesn't mention the resurrection, doesn't the volumes he doesn't mention. 
But that's the gospel. But if you'd understood the kingdom of God, if you'd understood the time has come, if you understood repent, if you'd understood believe, then you would understand it will involve the death of the Messiah, you'll understand it will involve the resurrection of the Messiah, you'll understand it will involve the return of the Messiah, you'll understand that he's dying. All that stuff is packed in there, but he doesn't have to preach it all because it's all implied in the truth of the gospel. This circularity of the gospel means that we can reach Christ from anywhere in the Bible. And all knowledge and all truth can be brought under Christian understanding so we can relate to anybody on any topic and bring it to the gospel because it's all truth is God's truth. And the gospel is a key part of God's truth. So let's get to personal evangelism. For preaching Christ crucified means proclaiming the gospel. But not simply a gospel outline like two ways to live. Humility alone prevents me from telling you its brilliance. (laughs) But it's not simply giving a gospel outline. For Paul says in Acts 20.20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. See, when you're trying to teach people something, you may have to teach all kinds of material to get them to understand the thing that you're trying to teach them. I didn't really have to explain to you about rely, depend, trust, did I? We could have just stuck on the word faith. But to clarify that issue, I talked to you about other stuff as well. Paul says, I I didn't hold back anything that would be helpful for you so that you would hear the message clearly, accurately, properly, so you would understand, that's just being a teacher, so that you would understand repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. For the gospel has a core that needs to be communicated, a core that will help you understand the rest, but it mustn't be limited to that core, as if other Christian truth is unrelated to the gospel, or worse still, as if there's Christian truth In addition to the gospel, there isn't any truth in addition to the gospel. And as we commend Christ Jesus as our Lord, the risen Lord, the crucified Lord to others, we mustn't hold back any other truth that goes along with that gospel message. Think how Paul put it to Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy 3. From infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scriptures make us wise unto salvation, but only through faith in Christ Jesus, not independently of Jesus. Now, he's only referring to the Old Testament here, but... All the Old Testament will make you wise for salvation provided you have Jesus Christ. For that is the way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. But the scriptures do more than that because the scriptures are inspired by God, breathed out by God, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. It's all part of the one truth that we have, God's truth, the only truth. So when Paul preached the gospel to the Thessalonians, like he preached it to the Ephesians, 
He said he shared everything. Everything. Paul didn't hold back from the Ephesians anything that would be helpful. And Paul didn't hold back from anything from the Thessalonians that would be helpful. So gospel preaching has this core, two ways to live, for example, but that's only just the core of the whole truth. And any and every part of the truth may be needed by the student who is being taught. And in sharing everything, it's not just ideas. So let me finish this first of our sessions by getting you to turn up 2 Thessalonians. No, turn up 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. If you prefer 2 Thessalonians, you just have a little read of that yourself. And I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 2. You know, the, the later in the evening, the worse the, the dad jokes get. And as I'm a grandfather now, the worse the granddad jokes get. And you need to know that according to me, it's very late in the evening in Sydney. <laughs> Just thought I'd warn you that now. It's past midnight in my time. And so this is when the granddad... You got it? 1 Thessalonians 2. I gave you extra time because it's a small part of the Bible to find. At least it's not as hard as Obadiah. Okay, 2 Thessalonians 2. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make doesn't spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well because you have become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God, who called you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Well, what did Paul share with them? Everything. His very, his very person, his very lives. He would not hold back from his hearers anything that would be helpful in order to help people understand Jesus Christ as Lord. For the Corinthians and the Corinthian church, they really needed to understand that bit of Jesus Christ as Lord, namely he became Lord through his death for their sins. So they shouldn't be going on boasting and 
dividing and quarrelling with each other. But for others, he needed to share different parts, different aspects of the same core message. But we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, the risen Lord of heaven and earth. That is whom we're preaching. In one sense, it's just three words, Jesus Christ Lord. In another sense, it's the whole Bible. And in fact, for you to understand the whole Bible, I'll even teach you things outside the Bible. There will be nothing I'll hold back. And it's not just uh, there's no ideas I'll hold back. My life also I won't hold back because I want you to see the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus didn't hold back his life but gave his life for the salvation of others. So the way I live is going to model the very message I'm going to be preaching. So these three little words, Jesus Christ, Lord, suddenly is encyclopedic as well. Well, we're going to hear more about gospeling later on, later this evening. We're going to have a break now and we're going to pray and we're going to sing and we're going to do a tap dance. I'm just looking. What's the advice I'm doing out here? Tap dance. I see he's risen for the occasion. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for every good thing that you give to us, Father. We thank you for calling us by your gospel, by this incredible announcement. We thank you, Father, that in your words, in our words, are your words, that people can hear us speak and hear you speak in us. We thank you for the great miracle of regeneration that would get people to hear you in us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful to the preaching of the gospel, that we might be trustworthy, reliable, dependable preachers of your word, that we might proclaim it in one-to-one or from a pulpit, in the marketplace or in the classroom, wherever we may be, that we might be able to declare and proclaim the great news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to so understand that central core message that we might truly understand all your truth that is the truth of this world, that we might share it with others from wherever they're at, wherever they come from. We might be able to show how the truth they already know fits into the truth of the gospel and the lies that they are already living need to be repented of so that they would come to put their trust in the one who saves from death and from the wrath to come. And so we do pray, Father, for your help in equipping us to do your task, and we ask it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.